Ambia just to make David go through all of that with me. Um, but uh, it's great to be back here and be able to, to share God's word together with you. David's been taking us through the life of David, which I thought was kind of fun to have David up here sharing and the big sign that says, the life of David, and he's on preaching. <laughs> That's pretty fun. But uh, we're going to continue with the life of David this morning. And last week, um, David Stelz brought us to the point where Saul was trying to kill the David of the Bible. And, uh, and, and, and David um, spared Saul's life, even when David, be, um, and, and even D- uh, David became his son-in-law of Saul through marriage through Michal. Um, who, by the way, just a side study, if you want to study a woman not to be like, Michal is it. Um, she, is, uh, she was actually betrothed to David as a snare, Saul said. Um, she was married to David, and then when David was out hiding in caves, she got remarried. Um, so they eventually have to drag her away from her second husband that she shouldn't have been with, and he follows her, and they send him home. Um, she had idols. Matter of fact, when she was saving David's life at one point, they, they think he's in bed, but it's a life-size idol in the bed in David's place. So she was an idol worshiper, and she had no respect for David as king whatsoever, which you'll actually find um, at the end of the passage. We're not going to look at that today, but that's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, um, toward the end of that. So if you're trying to find a woman not to be like, that's it. And guys, if you're in the dating stage, avoid any woman like that, okay? Just throwing that out there, that's just a little bonus. So by the end of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, which David took us through the end of 1 Samuel, Saul meets a gruesome death in battle. I mean, he's just like impaled. It's, it's really great. Um, the house of Saul is divided. The house of Saul, excuse me, and the house of David battle for the throne. And Saul's descendants claim Israel and David claims Judah. Judah, um, actually, David is king of Judah for three and a half years before he's actually then made king of both Israel and Judah. But there's this battle now between Saul's family and David's family as to who's going to have the throne. And um, after David becomes king, there's two battles, two skirmishes with the Philistines where they go after him, and uh, David actually ends up uh, winning the battles, which is really, really cool. Um, so that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 10 and 12, which are kind of a summary of what's happened in David's life through the first five chapters of 2 Samuel. And that's where I want us to start, and then we're going to go into chapter 6. But 2 Samuel chapter 5, in verse 10, it says, David became more and more powerful, and the Lord God of armies was with him. And then in verse 12, Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So David becomes the second king of Israel and the first king to successfully defeat the Philistines. So that's our setup there. And David's taken you through the, um, David Stelz has taken you through the battle with Goliath and the challenges of the nation at this point as Saul is king, but David is going to be king and Saul losing God's favor and all those things that are taking place. Now we have David established as the king of Israel. And that takes us to chapter 6. And that's really where I want us to focus today. Um, David brought up three different themes with you that were carried out through the scriptures, but especially in these stories. Anybody remember what those themes were? David, what were those three themes?
God opposes the proud was one, right? good thing because you forgot the third one that's the important yes uh, yes so God opposes the proud was the first one and so the opposite of that is God not only opposes the proud but he does what gives grace to the humble right so God opposes the proud but he shows his blessing and his mercy on the, the humble that God works in the midst of even depravity the depravity of mankind but also, God midst in, works in the midst of the holiness of, of people as well, not just in the depravity, but the, the flip would be in the holiness. And then the last one was the promise of the messianic, uh, the, the Messiah coming, the messianic promise, so, so that the Messiah would eventually come. But in the meantime, we still have this, this scenario where God's presence, God wants his presence among his people, and that's one of those themes that carries through. So the Messiah is coming to restore that relationship, but in the meantime, we have this theme that's carried over from Genesis on even up to this point, where in the garden, man was with God and walked with God until man and woman sinned. And I want to say man and woman, they both sinned, okay? So they sinned, and they were kicked out of the very presence of God. And God put them out of the garden and then put a, an angel with a flaming sword to protect the way so they couldn't go back to where God was. But God's desire has been to be with his people. And so he spoke to Moses through a burning bush, which is kind of really not really true because the bush wasn't actually burning, but uh, because it was, not, but anyway. So uh, the burning bush, and then eventually God speaks with Moses on the mountain and invites Moses up to the mountain to be with him and gives him a bunch of commands so that Moses can build a certain thing. What is Moses going to build? Anybody? The Ark of the Covenant, which is part of the, the tabernacle. So at, while he's up on the mountain, God gives him instructions. Listen, I'm going to give you all these instructions, step by step by step. You're going to build for me this tabernacle, this portable worship space. And in the midst of that is going to be the Ark of the Covenant where my glory will rest. Really cool. The desire was for God, his, his desire was to be among his people. Um, in Exodus 25, Exodus 37, and Exodus 35, God gave the instructions to Moses um, and the ark had been, has been with Israel on and off since about that second year in the wilderness. And it's been leading them uh, into battle, and, and it's been going before them. Um, in Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp under their respective banners besides the flags of their ancestral families, and they are to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance from it. So the tent of meeting was actually spaced in the middle and there were troops that, were, that would have their whole ranks set up to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. East and the west. Um, I want to get right for you guys, east and west. So um, whatever it was. So uh, the ark would be in the middle though so that God's presence was in the midst of the people. And it led them through the wilderness for 40 years, right? Under the leadership of Moses. It preceded them into battle and they conquered many countries, many lands under the leadership of Joshua as the end of the promised land. Uh, during the time of Samuel and Eli, which is where we start, remember Samuel was the prophet at the time when Saul was called to be king. At the time of Samuel and of Eli, the, the ark was in a place called Shiloh. And as we track the Israelites 
we remember that they were worshiping in Shiloh, and that's where the ark was. Um, but then this guy, Eli, remember Eli? Eli was the bad priest. He's the wicked priest. Um, he had two, well, he was the non, he was a bad father, I guess is the way I put it. And his sons were very rebellious, and they, they abused the authority of the temple and took bribes and all sorts of other stuff. They were in it for the money. And uh, it was Hopni and Phineas were his two sons. Um, they were going out to, to face the Philistines in battle, and they said, let's get the ark like it was some lucky charm, and we'll have it go with us, because if the ark is with us, we can't lose. And they did, and the Philistines defeated them, and the Philistines carried off the ark into their country and put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Remember that story? Hopefully you do. If not, go back. It's, in the, it's actually in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 4 through 6. So the Philistines get punished by God. Their, their idol, their god Dagon, his statue ends up like collapsing twice. They start getting like boils and things on their skin. So they just start going like, like a hot potato. I don't want it here. Send it somewhere else. So they send it to Ashdod. The people of Ashdod are like, we don't want it. Send it somewhere else. They send it to Gath. Then they send it to Ekron. And finally they're like, let's just send this thing back. So they send it back with a bunch of gold rats and tumors. <laughs> right? So one for each king and each region, um, and the <laughs> I think the rats represented those kings, but actually they were plagued by rats, and they were plagued by tumors, and so they sent these offerings, peace offerings, back to the God of the, of the Israelites. Um, it ended up back in Kiriath-Jerim. Um, actually, it, it went back to Beth Shemesh first, and then there were 70 guys that opened up the ark and looked in it. Do you remember that? They died. God wipes out 70 guys for looking in the ark. And so the people of Beth Shemesh are like, we don't want it. So they call on their brothers from Kiriath-Jerim, and they said, you come and get it. And it goes to the house of a man named Abinadab, where, it's, where it sits for 20 years. So this ark that started with them in the wilderness, traveled through the wilderness into the promised land, ended up in Shiloh, ended up with the Philistines, came back. Some of the Israelites didn't even want it. It ends up in, in Kiriath-Jerim in, in the house of Abinadab. It's no longer in the center of the people. And that's significant. It's removed from the people. And that's important that we notice. So now David is king. And David is known as the man, what? After God's own heart, it says in the scriptures. So he had the heart of God, which is really cool. And he has a great idea. Let's bring the ark back to the people. Now he had conquered this city, Jerusalem, and he liked it so much that he made it his own and he called it the city of David. First time a city's been named after a conquering Israel king. Okay, city of David. And he wants to move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to the city of David so that it can be with him and with the people where he's ruling from. It's really a cool concept because if David is going to be king and that's going to be his throne, having God there with him is significant. Having him able to be next to God, to consult God, is significant. And showing that leadership is dependent upon God, is also very significant. These are good things, okay? David's doing an awesome thing here. So I want you to understand that. His heart is right in what he's doing here. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I want us to read together what takes place. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So David assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000 of them, 
he and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah, which is actually um, Kiriath Jerim. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. And realize these guys have been with the ark for how many years? 20 years, right? So Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. So David was angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah, and as it is to today. And David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he delivered it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Now this seems like a bizarre story, right? I mean, why would God strike someone down that was trying to protect the ark in the first place? And now David, who's a man after God's own heart, who wanted God near him, doesn't even dare to go near God and just sends the ark to somebody else. Like, I don't want God to punish me, so I'm just going to send it to Obed's house. I mean, it's, it's not good. He's doing basically what the Philistines did before. He avoids God, he tries to divert trouble to someone else, and he gets angry at God. I think this really shows part of the human condition. When things don't go the way that we want, when tragedy strikes and we have no answer, when bad things happen and we can't comprehend why God would allow them, it is very likely that some people will get angry at God, that some people will try to push God away and avoid God that some people may even have an inappropriate fear of God. They're not healthy options, and they really come from a wrong theology about God or a wrong reaction to who God is. And I want us to realize that all of us can fall into this spot. David was a man after God's own heart. He was trying to do what was right, and yet he still struggled and wrestled with God over this. I've met many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who have struggled through some tough times in their life and then felt guilty or bad about the way they felt about God, about the fact that they've distanced themselves from God or were angry at God. And I want you to know that these are normal responses, but there's not a healthy place to stay. It's not a healthy place to stay. But I also don't want you to feel guilty if you ever get mad at God. Have you ever been mad at God before? I have. Have you ever tried to distance yourself from God because you don't like what he's doing? Um, it's, it's common for us to have those reactions. It's not healthy for us to stay there. So let me go back to the question at hand, which is really why did God kill Uzzah? Why did God allow that to happen? 
God literally killed him. Matter of fact, it says like, um, Lord's anger burned against him. He struck him dead and he died. I mean, he's, he's dead twice, okay? He struck him dead and he died there at the, at the ark. So he wanted to make sure in this story that you knew that God killed him and he killed him dead, okay? Just wanted to make sure you got that. So why did God do that? I thought God wanted to be with his creation. Hasn't that been the theme of scripture since Genesis? So why would God kill somebody, especially someone who appears to be trying to protect the ark of God? Weren't Uzzah's intentions good? When Moses gave the commandments for building the tabernacle and the procedures for worship, there's a phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. And it says, and Moses did all that was commanded by God. And Moses did all that was commanded by God. And Moses did exactly what God told him to do. And that phrase is repeated over and over and over again. And then as they built the tabernacle, then it says, and the people did all that was commanded by God. And the people obeyed God completely. And that's a huge theme in the book of Exodus. And it was very intentional. There were specific instructions that God gave regarding his ark regarding his presence, regarding the way that it was to be treated, how it was to be moved and who could move it. And these commands were really meant like all of God's commands for the benefit and protection of his people and for the glory of his name. David, in all of his excitement, wanted to have God among them, but did things his own way and not God's way. And you have to understand that about this story or it doesn't make sense. David did it his way instead of God's way. Now I want you to think back. The first king was who? Saul. And Saul was removed as king. Why? Do you remember the specific incident that got him in trouble? He was offering a sacrifice that he was not authorized to offer. He was trying to do things his way instead of God's way. Now here's David doing the same exact thing. David had the right heart and even a great idea, but in the process of wanting to do something awesome for God, he ignored the direct command of God. Catch that. In a desire to do something awesome for God, to do something great for God that would bring glory to his name and blessing to his people, he ignored the very commands of God. So his heart was right, his intentions were good, his motives were even good, but he missed something very significant. He failed to follow God's commands in the process. 2 Samuel 6 continues to tell us what David did after that. Um, he eventually did move the ark to the city of David, um, and that one went okay, but Samuel doesn't really tell us what the difference was. So you have First and Second Samuel, which originally used to be one book. You have First and Second Kings, which used to be one book. And then you have this book called Chronicles, and the Chronicles kind of summarizes, and it's like an overview of Samuel and the kings. It has some stories that are not in the others, and some that are. And in Chronicles chapter 15, we actually find out what did take place. In, in 2 Samuel 6, we read about Michal and how she's just upset at David, and they have an argument, and all this kind of stuff that goes on. But you don't really get the whole picture of what's taking place and what changed between the first time they bring the ark and the second time. Because after... The ark is for three months at Obed-Edom's house. 
David sees that God is blessing him and says, well, I guess God isn't totally mad with all of us, so maybe he'll allow us to come back. But there's something that changes in the way that David does things. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of the names. I'm going to kind of skip some verses that are just like riddled with names. Um, that's not only to save time, but embarrassment for me. First Chronicles chapter 15. So, in case you're interested, chapter 13 is the story we just read with Uzzah and the ark on the cart. Okay? Um, and then we read about chapter 14, God has some other ways that he blesses David. And then in chapter 15 in First Chronicles, it picks up with the second time that David tries to move the ark. And in chapter 15, we read this. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. So David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. Then he gathered together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. And then in verses 5 through 10, he names off a bunch of them. In verse 11, David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites Uriel, Azaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, you are the heads of the Levite families. You and your relatives must consecrate yourselves so that you may bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. For we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring the ark of the Lord God to, of Israel. Then the Levites carried the ark of God the way Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord, on their shoulders with the poles. Then David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers and to have them raise their voices with joy, accompanied by musical instruments, harps, lyres, and cymbals. And so the Levites appointed all these people to do just that. And in verse 25, David the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went with rejoicing to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. With God's help, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, as well as the singers and the music leaders. David... Um, also wore a linen ephod. So all of Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, the sounds of ram's horns, trumpets, and cymbals, and the playing of harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michal looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the Ark of God and placed it inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in God's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to each and every Israelite, both men and women, a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. And as you read on in chapter 16, um, there's actually a psalm that's sung, and, and there's seven sections to that psalm. You might want to consider doing that for your quiet time this next week. Go through a section of it each day and see how it declares the glory of God. It's really just a, a really cool song. 
um, that's spelled out there. So in, in chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, we find out that the second time there were some things that were different. What were some of the things that were different between the first attempt and the second attempt? How it was transported. How was it transported in the first attempt? On a cart pulled by oxen. It was a new cart. I mean, at least if you're going to put God on a cart, make it a new one, right? But obviously that's not what God wanted. So how was it transported the second time? By poles. The poles were a part of the ark, and the Levites were to carry that on their shoulders. Okay, what else was different? The Levites were chosen. Yeah, who transported it? In the first one, who went with David to collect the ark? 30,000 young men. Yeah, yeah. Um, who went with them the second time? The Levites, who also consecrated themselves. So what's that word consecrate means? They had themselves set apart. So they spent time um, cleansing themselves and making themselves right with God before they went to move the ark. So that was definitely different. Um, anything else? Was there something the same between both of them? Music and dancing and rejoicing. That was definitely the same in, in both of them. Um, and you notice that in the second passage in 1 Chronicles 15, that it says specifically in verses 13 through 15, this is just like a, a summary of, of what they learned in this process. David said, The Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. For we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. We didn't check with God first. We didn't check with God first. And that was really, really important. Um, and then in, in verses 25 and 26, um, they went rejoicing and brought the Ark of the Covenant because God had helped them. And so God blessed them and God helped them, which we didn't have. In the first one, God is angry and God strikes somebody dead. In the second one, God helps them and the people rejoice and they offer sacrifices to God and he allows them to, to move where it's supposed to be. So this passage is significant because it, it shows what's necessary, not just for kings, but for the followers of God. We can do many things with great motives, great intentions, good thoughts, wanting to do the best for God and for others, but really miss out on what we're supposed to be doing because we ignore God's word. We have to start with God's word. So let me give you four lessons, not 12, David, but four lessons from this passage, just some thoughts that I want you to ponder about for your own life in regard to this story. The first thing is, doing things the right way matters. Doing things the right way matters. If God has given specific instructions in his word, then obedience to his instructions must be our actions. They must direct our actions. Best intentions carried out contrary to God's word are not good. And it cost Uzzah his life. David cost Uzzah his life. When we act outside of God's word, outside of God's commands, and we just do things the way that we think should be done instead of the way God says should be done, it brings harm to others. So doing things the right way matters. The second thing is, passion is not greater than obedience. Both times David attempted to move the ark to the city of David, there was music, there were masses of people, David dancing with all of his might, 
no public display of emotion, no amount of devotion, no volume of singing or praise can take place, can take the place of obedience to God. They can certainly go alongside each other, but passion cannot replace obedience. Passion cannot replace obedience. The third thing I think we need to recognize is that our greatest joy is found in God's presence. See, David wanted the ark in the city of David because he wanted God's presence near him. It wasn't like Eli's sons who were using the ark as a lucky charm to try to get what they wanted. David really wanted to be close to God. And both times, when they did it the wrong way and when they did it the right way, there was rejoicing among all the people and among David, but not, that wasn't the focus of it. And a lot of people focus on the fact that he was dancing and that there was music and, and Michael's reaction or Michael's reaction. A lot of people focus on that, but that wasn't the point, was it? It's the fact that God was not going to be removed from his people any longer. He was going to be among his people with their leadership in the center of their place of worship now in Jerusalem, in the city of David. Many people focus in that 2 Samuel 6 passage. David says, you know, I'll, I'll be more undignified. And there's songs about being undignified. That's not the point. The point is not the dancing of David or how hard he danced. The point is not even what David was wearing. The point isn't the, isn't the fact that they had musicians and that everybody was, was dancing and singing. The point was they why they rejoiced. They rejoiced because God's presence was now with them again. Our greatest joy will not be in how we feel or just the music that we sing. Our greatest joy comes in the presence of God. And the last thing I think we need to realize is that when you spend time in the presence of God, it should make us like him. It should change us to be like him. And we see that in David. When the ark was with Obed-Edom, what did it say happened for Obed? He was blessed. Everything was blessed that he had, right? God blessed him. And, and in that sense, it, was, it meant probably a lot of different things. I'm sure his crops did well, his family did well, all sorts of different things did well. God blessed him. Now, you guys know that I'm not a prosperity gospel kind of guy, you know. Follow God and he'll give you a Mercedes Benz. No, that's ridiculous bonk, okay? He might, that's cool. But God does not promise you wealth. He does not promise you stuff. The greatest blessing of God, the greatest gift of God is his very presence. And that's what he promises us. But apparently he also chose to bless Obed in other ways, just like he chose to bless David and Solomon in other ways. And when David was done and the ark was in place and they offered up sacrifices and they set up temple worship again, as the people were being dismissed, he gave to both the men and the women, shout out to the ladies there, okay, because they're not always mentioned here in the Old Testament, okay, but he gave to both the men and the women what, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. He gave them gifts. And I believe that that's a reflection of God. In the same way that God chose to bless Obed, David chose to bless the people. And he was reflecting the very nature and giving heart of the Father. We often look at passages like this, and it's easy to glance over them as just being historical. 
and just going, oh, well, that's a pretty neat story. Oh, look at that. Uzzah died. Killed him dead right next to the ark. And then we make jokes about, you know, we don't want to mess up because God might zap us into a little greasy spot and take us out or whatever. And it's like, okay, maybe God would. I don't think so. I hope not. I should have been zapped years ago if that's the case. But we read this historical account and we forget that the most important part of all of it was the fact that God was among his people and that David's desire was to be close to God. And everything else, everything else is secondary. And if you want to be close to God, you have to understand that you have to do things God's way. That's why we have the law. That's why we have the commands of Christ. You can't even have a relationship with God apart from the way that he's designed. Right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. God established the way for us to get to him, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ, the promise of the Messiah, as David's been pointing out in the last couple weeks. If you want to be near God, you have to do it God's way. You can't do it on your own. You can't buy your way in. You can't work your way in. You have to do what he says, and that's trust him. It's that simple. And if you want to stay close to God, you have to believe that obedience is more important than just good intentions or passion or emotion. Oh, I feel like I'm so close to God, but I'm just not going to go to church for the next month. Well, no, that's not right, right? I feel so close to God, but I don't spend any time with him. But, you know, I, but when I listen to Caleb, boy, that, you know, man... I had God moments in the car, you know? It's like, okay, yeah, but. See, we can ignore God's word, and that's wrong, and still think that things are okay if we feel right. But passion does not replace obedience. And to stay close to God requires a faithful obedience and a long obedience to him and his word. We have to realize that our greatest joy is not going to be found in our jobs, it's not going to be found in traipsing all over the North Country watching our kids play sports, as fun as that is and as exciting as it is, or, or watching all their concerts. Love doing it. But your greatest joy will be found in your relationship with God and spill out into everything else. And we have to understand that and make sure that that's a priority. And we have to realize that being in the presence of God is not about us getting what we want, like Hophni and Phineas thought. Being in the presence of God is about God being able to then change us to be like him, to reflect him to the world around us. That is the work that God wants to do in us. So as we wrap up our time this morning, do you believe that doing things God's way matters? Do you really believe that obedience is the best gift? Matter of fact, when Saul was unfaithful to God by taking the sacrifice in in his own hands, He was reprimanded and was told to obey is better than sacrifice. As important as sacrifice was to the Jewish culture, to obey was even more important. Do you find your greatest joy in your time with God? Do you have time with God? Let me say this. You can't be obedient to God if you don't spend time in his word. You can't be obedient to God if you don't know what his word says, right? How many of you drive vehicles? How many of you know all of the traffic laws? Right? How many of you, how many of you are, are getting ready to file your taxes? How many of you know all the tax laws? Right, so no matter what, you're probably going to, you know, you're going to pay somebody else to do your work for your taxes because you can't keep track of all the stuff. You're going to hope the software's right, whatever it is, right? Because you don't know all the tax laws. It's impossible to obey all the tax laws because you can't know them all because they keep changing. 
And even if they did, you'd spend all your time trying to learn them. That's why we have CPAs and accountants. But to think that you could know all of the laws of this land just by being a citizen of this land is ludicrous. Just like believing that you could know all the laws of God just because you're a child of God is ludicrous. You have to spend time studying it and knowing it and learning it. You have to spend time with God in his word and in prayer. And when you do those things, God wants to and will change you to be like him. Because that's what the Spirit does. Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the Spirit or the work of the Spirit in our lives is to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That's what he's going to produce in us. And it's going to spill out into our relationships and in the way that we interact with other people. So I want to encourage you. Don't just try to do great things for God with your best intentions and go out and do whatever you think is right. Do great things for God by understanding what he wants of you and being obedient to him and trusting him in that way. Allow him to change you by being open to what he wants to do and doing things the way that he says. Don't go kicking and screaming all the time. You'll have times where you will. Let's be honest, we will. But let's be willing to trust God and to follow his leadership and to see what he can do to change us to be like him. God's presence among the Israelites is going to continue to change their nation. It's going to continue to change David. It's not going to make him perfect as we're going to see in the days to come. But it will, it will change the people because God's presence is among them. So my hope and my prayer is that you will allow God's presence to be real in your life. That it won't just be about coming out on a Sunday morning. That it'll be about spending time getting to know God better. Spending time listening to him in his word, talking to him in prayer. You can still sing. You can still dance. That's cool. It's still great to be passionate about God. But we also need to be students of his word and, and also um, obedient children um, to our Heavenly Father that loves us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for examples that remind us of what's really significant and important. Father, I know that we can try to do all sorts of great things for you with great intentions and good motives and pure hearts, and it's still possible to miss the mark because we're not following what you say to do. So help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to listen to your spirit uh, that's within us. Help us to follow your lead, to find our greatest joy in our time with you and in reflecting you to the world around us. And help us just to trust you. Trust you enough to obey you even, even when we don't like the answers, even if we're not sure of the direction, but to make sure that we're being faithful uh, to follow you and to know that you truly are a God who loves us, who cares about us, and who wants to be among us um, so that we can re experience your love and your grace and so that you can change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.